Steve Elliott, Dr. Steve Elliott, is our professor of pastoral ministry and church planting here. Uh, Steve comes to us after a long uh, uh, church planting endeavor in Canada, just outside Ottawa. Took a church from two, started with two, um, and took it up above a thousand. So he understands church planting. Uh, he then went and did his uh, doctorate at Asbury Theological Seminary, went back to Buffalo and did a church revitalization. So he knows about church health, and the man knows everything about discipleship that there is. So when we began talking about somebody that understands uh, mentoring, understands church health, understands church planting, and understands the life of a preacher, gee, who should we ask to do a session on discipleship? Um, and so Steve's name came, and I asked Steve, and he said, in the midst of an incredible busy semester, in, in the midst of everything that's going on, yes, I would love to do this. So Dr. Steve Elliott, would you come and share with us? Well, if we were just bone dry honest, we would have to say that one of the main reasons why churches are half empty is because the preaching is so boring and irrelevant and ineffective. Uh, my secretary said that to me uh, when I was down in Buffalo. Uh, she said, uh, you know why people don't go to church? And she's just speaking generically. And I said, why is that? She says, uh, because they don't get anything out of church. They don't get anything out of the sermons. And uh, the day of just going to church because of denominational loyalties is long over. Uh, you have to give people a reason to get out of bed on a Sunday morning to go to church. Um, I think it was uh, this uh, online definition of preaching. It says to give religious or moral instruction, especially in a tedious manner. That's the secular definition of preaching. That the world starts with the assumption that what you're going to say is tedious, irrelevant, and absolutely boring as I'll get out. Uh, Stan uh, Hoover, uh, to Stan, Stan Toder, sorry, from the Nazarene Church, uh, was the guy that said uh, a while ago that your church growth may rise and fall on the quality of the preaching of a church. Uh, not only numerically does it grow, but also spiritually uh, can it grow. Sometimes it's true that what we say from God's word is offensive to people because it convicts and it contradicts their practices and perspectives, but if we're real honest with one another, I think sometimes we just got to say more often it's the way that we deliver the message that's problematic uh, more than the actual content. So George Barna, uh, a number of years ago, did this study into uh, issues of discipleship, and he said, is it even possible that a church can grow wide and deep? Wide meaning that there's a lot of people that come, but at the same time, deep spiritually that people can actually grow uh, as Christ followers, and his conclusion was an overwhelming yes. This is his quote. He says, we quickly learned that a church engaged in effective discipleship is a church that will grow steadily and solidly. Why? Because people love to be cared for, and a church that emphasizes genuine spiritual care and facilitates real spiritual growth will be a magnet. The more committed the church is to the process of discipleship, the more people are attracted to that church. And so the question is, can you grow a church broad, lots of people, and deep, according to George Byrne and his research, the answer is yes. And so my assignment is to deal with this issue of discipleship and preaching as a means of discipleship. So it begs the question, you know, under what circumstances and condition does a believer grow in likeness to, to the master? When and where does a Christian 
get transformed most likely? Where is it going to take place? Well, he went on to say it takes place in a variety of ways. It takes place in teaching formats. It takes place in teaching where you're actually learning and doing hands-on. It comes in the experiences of life where you're in a certain place and that, that experience actually has a transformative influence upon you. It comes in relationships with a mentor or role model. It comes through accountability. Then he said this, discipleship does not happen simply because a church exists. It occurs when there's an intentional and strategic thrust to facilitate spiritual maturity. The local church must have a philosophy of ministry that emphasizes the significance of discipleship and promotes a process for facilitating such maturity. Discipleship does not happen in a vacuum. It happens because it's very intentional. As a matter of fact, it has to be so intentional, it has to become the senior pastor's, one of his core objectives or her objectives in the life of that church. What am I doing? One of the things I'm doing in preaching is I'm trying to help facilitate discipleship. Barna said this, in highly effective discipleship-making churches, the senior pastor was acknowledged to be the catalyst behind the commitment to spiritual growth. It is his passion, the vision, his strategies, resourcing, and promotion of the senior pastor that prevents the church from becoming lazy in this dimension of ministry. In many churches, they are not doing well in discipleship. We learned that either the senior pastor is silent about discipleship or merely just gives it its lip service. And so a few years ago, uh, before I became into this role here, uh, I pastored in Canada for about 22 years. And being that long in a community, eventually the community just says, hey, why don't you be the chairman of the ministerial? And so they asked me to be the chairman of the local ministerial. And we had everybody there. I mean, we had Catholics. We had the Baha'i. We had the Jehovah Witnesses. We had everybody at our ministerial meetings. I mean, it was a really eclectic group of people that are there. And we often threw it on the table at our ministerial meetings a question of the day just to have some fun. What does your church believe about baptism? What does your church believe about communion? What does your church believe about this? What are some of your practices? Just had some fun with it. And we relatively got along. We didn't kill each other very often. But one day, the question of the day is, why do you preach? Uh, this is going to be fun. Why do we preach? And so we went around the circle. It just happened, and that didn't normally happen this way. It just happened that I was the last person to speak. And so they went around the group, and they were asking the question, why do we preach at our churches? Whether we're an Anglican church or Lutheran church or Presbyterian church or a Catholic church with their, you know, little four or five-minute little homily or, or evangelical church, you know, they're, they're going strong for like 75 minutes. Why do you do this? And we went around the room, and when it came my turn to speak, this is what I said. And I says, oh, this is verbatim. I think I can quote this verbatim. I said, the reason I preach is to bring about God and life change in the lives of those who hear me. Honest to goodness, this is what happened. I am not exaggerating. They laughed at me. And I went, why are you guys laughing? And they said back to me, do you really think that your preaching brings about life transformation? And I was totally taken back. And I said, if I didn't, why would I do it? Why would I spend 15 to 20 hours every week preparing a message if I did not think that something in what I'm saying is going to significantly contribute to helping somebody else grow in their faith? And then they used this word with me. They said, that's a divergent opinion from the most of us. <laughs> what? Why do you guys preach well, because we get paid to preach. It's expected. It's part of our liturgy. You don't preach intentionally in order to help facilitate spiritual growth, to help bring about God-honoring life change. Now, 
please, I, I'm, I'm going to be as honest as I can be, and I'm going to assume you're going to cut me some slack up here. I'm not saying this to be boastful. I'm just telling you this. Does it come as any surprise that our church grew from two people to over 1,000 people while most of the churches in Canada were declining? I'm not saying that as a pat on my back. By no means. I'm the stupidest person in this room. I am not smart. I'm not a good person. God's the only one who's good in this world. But my intent in preaching is to help people to grow into Christ-likeness. What is ours? George Barnes says, if the senior pastor does not have that type of viewpoint about why they preach, they take it as one of the core objectives of the church. The primary reason when I get up on Sunday morning is to help facilitate God-honoring life change in people, that church is not going to do a good job at discipleship. Then Barna went on and said this. The second factor in discipling churches is that the senior leadership of the church usually designs its own discipleship curriculum and strategy. Rarely do churches that are strong in discipleship use standardized discipleship materials, meaning they purchase generic Sunday school materials for teens and adults, nor do they blindly borrow systems and materials of large growing churches. Churches who are strong in discipleship often develop their own materials in-house, or if they do get it from outside, they modify it and personalize the material so that it applies in their local situation. Um, when I was a student here at Bethany Bible College back in the 70s, and I came back and finished in the 80s, um, Helen and I were married. We just did a lot of visiting of a lot of churches uh, in the area. We went out and just visited all over the place because that's what you do when you're a student. And um, I won't say where the church was, and I'm not going to give any details about it, because I wouldn't want to do anything that would embarrass that congregation or church, and the pastor's not even here anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. But on the way to church, there was a bit of a drive to get there. And on the way to church, I played a cassette in the car of a John Maxwell sermon. And when I got to church, I heard word for word the exact same sermon with the same illustrations applied to the preacher, not ascribed to John. I know of another church in Ontario. Their pastor consistently preaches like the Andy Stanley stuffs and the Rick Warren stuff. Churches that are good at discipleship do not do that. Churches that are good at discipleship develop their own materials. They own it. They do their own research. They dig hard. They make it their own stuff. So why do I preach? Do I preach the materials of others? Do I have some type of an intentional annual design and strategy? So I'll just tell you that when we went to Canada, I think it was Dr. Buckingham that had first said to me uh, years and years ago that you need to have some type of a flow chart, some type of a design of what it is that you think that you're going to try and do. And so I came up with this flow chart. I figured that there were two pools of people that we draw from. It was Christians and non-Christians in Canada. I couldn't think of any other way to describe them, Christians and non-Christians. And somehow, either we go to them or they come to us. That's why the arrows go both ways. But somehow, there's an entry point into their lives or them into our church. And every person that comes to us have to have some system of welcome and integration. And those that are unchurched and unsaved, we have to provide intentional salvation opportunities. And then there's this whole issue of discipleship. That somehow, there has to be an intentional system of developing people into Christ-likeness and equipping them. 
and then support and encourage people and help them get into serving-type ministries. And so we decided that if the objective of our church was to help people live God-pleasing lives, I guess we better figure out what helps people live God-pleasing lives. And I studied and studied and studied and studied and studied at it. And any place in the Bible where it says, for we make it our goal to please him, whether in the body or out of the body, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable, pleasing, well done, good and faithful servant, anything that would give me an indication that God was pleased with the person. And I discovered that there was at least 20 places in the Bible where it says, for this pleases God. It's not his will, by the way, the word will is also pleasure. It's not his pleasure that any should perish that all come to repentance. So we know that salvation is something that pleases God and humility and generosity. And so we started designing intentional discipleship materials around the 20 principles of pleasing God and started teaching it from the pulpit and in small groups and in Sunday school classes. And we wrote the stuff and some of it wasn't very good and then we gave it to other people and they took it and refined it and helped us get better at it. It's what churches do that are good in discipleship. They don't just arbitrarily borrow material from other people. If they do, they'll still take it and massage it and make it their own. Number three, the discipleship system must include some system of evaluating progress, accountability, and reward and consequences. Meaning this, that churches that are serious about discipleship provide for the congregation some method of measuring their spiritual progress. And often these tools, whether they're a paper test or an interpersonal feedback, looks at such things as, are you growing a biblical knowledge? Is the fruit of the Spirit more evident in your life? Are your behavioral character assessments, are they inclined to, to look like Jesus? Are you practicing the spiritual disciplines? Are you involved in, in ministries? How do your attitudes like, your emotional well-being, your growth plans? And these individuals who are serious about spiritual pursuit are not allowed into the program unless they're serious about it. Will they actually sign a covenant saying, I will pursue this? Barna says, this is what churches do that are strong in areas of discipleship. So the question comes, how and when and where do we evaluate whether anybody's actually growing in our church? Dr. Kanzamar, who was one of our professors back in the 80s here at the school, and by the way, his doctorate was in education, uh, he said this one day in class. He says, if you can't or don't measure something, you don't know if it's happening. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. How in the world do you actually know whether what you're saying and preaching and teaching is making a difference in people's lives if you don't measure it? And if you're not succeeding, why? Is it me and my preaching methods? Is the congregation responsible because they're not engaged? It, maybe it's the environment that's not conducive to, le to learning, or maybe it's a combination of something else other than that. And so we started developing this spiritual walk survey. Um, we took the uh, James Engel um, uh, scale, uh, charting where people may be spiritually, and we started asking people, uh, would you mind telling us where you are on this scale? Would you just figure out where you are on a scale of 1 to 10 on here? And... Uh, Next year, we're going to ask you the same question to see whether or not you're actually growing. What a novel thought that we would actually measure to see if anybody's growing. And there's lots of tools out there. This is not the only one. Probably the most uh, well-known one is that bottom one there. It's called the Spiritual Well-Being um, Survey. But there's all kinds of assessments where you can, you've been teaching on a, preaching, a particular sermon series did anybody hear? Did it, did it change anybody? Churches that are strong in discipleship. 
actually measure to see whether or not anything's happening. And then churches, lastly, that are strong in this issue of discipleship have got clear objectives and a clear methods and a process. So discipling churches help people in the church develop an action plan, usually around the three or four areas like are you growing in orthodox biblical beliefs? Are you growing in the spiritual disciplines? Is Christ-like virtues and character traits becoming increasingly part of who you are? And the God-honoring experiences in, in ministry, is that part and parcel of, of what's going on in your lives? So what discipleship systems do we have in place? Well, a few years ago, some of you are probably very well of this survey that took place by uh, uh, the Willow Creek Organization. Uh, they decided to do a survey to determine whether or not discipleship was actually taking place uh, in their, in their um, network of churches. And the one question that they were asking is, are we providing an environment in which people can grow spiritually? And they started with an assumption. They said, we believe that if a person is regular in attendance and if they're volunteering in ministry, that they'll be growing spiritually. Is that a true assumption? And the Reveal study looked at it, and they looked at all kinds of people. They looked at over 6,000 people in the first survey. They did it again three years later to see if anything had changed, and they looked at 5,000 people in 2007. They even went out and connected with 300 people who, people who had left the Willow Creek organization. They did 120 people uh, in-depth surveys. They consulted with discipleship experts and biblical scholars, and since then, it's now gone to 1,800 churches with over 500,000 people that have surveyed, and the answer that came back was this, that only about 5% of churches have an effective discipleship ministry. Which means 95% of us are not doing a very good job. So I'm hopeful. Personality trait of the lead pastor, it's a non-factor. Um... Some of you that are students, you already know this. Some of you who have no clue uh, who this guy is up here, I would just tell you that I am tremendously inter introverted. Um, I am an off-the-chart phlegmatic. I've taken the test dozens of times. I'm off-the-chart phlegmatic. I'm not extroverted. These things do not come easy for me. But somehow we were able to figure this thing out, and when he says the personality trait of the pastor is immaterial, it's immaterial. I don't care what kind of personality you've got. You can lead a discipling church. The location, size, and denomination of your church, absolutely irrelevant factors. And discipleship programs are most effective for new believers and far less helpful for older believers was one of the main takeaways. Those churches that are doing a pretty good job with discipleship, yeah, it's pretty helpful to those that are young in the faith. But anybody that's been in the church for a while the discipleship programs that we offer, like our small groups, our adult Sunday school classes, those type of things, they're not doing a very good job. Actually, they discovered that almost a quarter of the people that were going to Willow Creek churches that considered themselves older believers were thinking of leaving the church. They didn't find the environment that they were providing in the Willow Creek churches to be stimulating and challenging them in growth. So what did the Reveal study come up with best practices? Um, sorry, you can't see that. The very first one up there says this, that senior pastors got to be spiritually vibrant themselves. Second of all, and probably the most important recommendation, is that the churches that are good in discipleship heavily, 
heavily promote personal devotions, Bible reading, and journaling. Because they discovered that in the Willow Creek Association, that only about 7% of the people that were coming to church had any kind of a devotional life. 93% rarely opened up their Bible outside of church. And it was one of the leading causes of people stalling spiritually. So the churches that are doing a good job were the churches that were heavily promoting, you need to be reading your Bible systematically. You need to be journaling. High expectation for people to be involved in local and global service. Pastors empowering, equipping, and cheerling of lay ministry, including making sure that the church provides some type of a budget and training and resourcing for lay ministry. The effective preaching and teaching ministries, which ultimately is where I'm going with this session, is an important factor. Self-centeredness and irresponsibility is tackled both privately in accountability groups and frequently tackled publicly, meaning in the pulpit it's taught against, because people consistently kept saying, please, somebody hold me accountable for my spiritual growth. Somebody mentor me. Somebody invest in me. Inspirational, faith-inspiring vision to impact the entire community and soul in is expected as normal Christian living. These are their main takeaways. So what are the environments of discipleship? Well, the answer is six plus one. It seems like an odd thing to say, but in what environment do people actually grow spiritually? Well, they grow, first of all, in large group settings. They grow in mid-sized group settings in discipleship. They grow in small group settings. They grow in one-on-one discipleship. They grow in family discipleship, personal devotions. Those are the six. And in every situation, you can find scriptures to support these. I mean, Jesus is standing before the masses, and he's teaching. And so large group discipleship is completely biblical, despite what some of the emergent church may say, that only discipleship happens life on life. Jesus did not restrict all of his discipleship to life on life. There were times he stood before thousands of people and he taught them. And so large group discipleship is a very valid form of discipleship. Mid-sized group, where he takes the the 50 or the 72 and he gets them alone and he says, no, you guys are going to go out, but let me tell you how to do this thing. Then there's a small group where he's meeting with the 12. And then there's a one-on-one where he's talking to Peter. He says, Peter, don't don't worry about what's going on in this guy's life. Let me tell you what needs to happen in your life. And, of course, all the, the passages about family discipleship, especially out of the Old Testament in First Thessalonians, about how a father uh, encourages comfort. To, um, uh, he urges his children to live lives worthy of God out of First Thessalonians chapter 2. And, of course, personal discipleship, where somebody for themselves is digging into God's word. These are the environments in which people can be discipled. But I said it's 6 plus 1 because there is another environment Sorry, each level of discipleship tends to be increasingly more effective. So if you look at this, at this, they tend to get increasingly more effective. And so large group, yeah, there's an effective of this, but you get into a mid-sized group, it's getting better. You get into a small group, it's more accountability, it's more uh, relevant to life. One-on-one, somebody's personally investing in your life. Interesting, family discipleship, the impact of your parents teaching the children is huge. And I'll... If I can just pause for a sec before I get back into this preaching issue. We have a totally wrong assumption that we operate from in most evangelical churches. We start with the assumption that family discipleship takes place, and it is not. 
And if I were to ask the average congregation, by show of hands, how many people in this room have ever been trained how to do family discipleship, how to do a devotional time effectively with your own children? Almost no hands go up. We're not even providing what is probably the second most powerful form of discipleship, which is the impact of mom and dad reading the word, praying with us, role modeling for us the things that are important, and then personal discipleship. Your own time one-on-one with God is desperately important. So each level tends to get increasingly more effective, and it provides for a variety of learning styles and opportunities, and accounts for the various stages where people are at in their discipleship journey, because some people initially only want to remain anonymous. They want to sit on the fringes in public gatherings, assessing and listening and watching before they fully commit. And so if you don't provide a strong pulpit ministry, you're completely ignoring a whole group of people that are not ready for small group. They're not ready for one-on-one. What they're ready for is to anonymously sit on the outside of the crowd and listen to Jesus as he talks. And maybe later on the Nicodemus will come and have a one-on-one encounter But initially, it's just listening from a distance. Well, what's the seventh setting? The discipleship environment that nobody wants, (laughs) which is pain and conflict. Clearly, the scripture teaches that one of the greatest tools of discipleship is bad things happening in people's lives. It's suffering that develops perseverance and character and hope. He who has suffered is done with sin. Psalmist said, it's good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And even about Jesus, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. And so the difficult times of life is one of the discipleship environments that we cannot ignore. But we said large group discipleship takes place in a large preaching environment. So let me share with you some really, really, really bad news. Boy, Steve, you're just full of wonderful stuff today. I read this stat, I think it was in 1998, and so I cannot tell you where I got this stat because it was long before I became a professor and I didn't have to make reference to where I found material back then. I think it was Leadership Journal. Matter of fact, I contacted Leadership Journal this week and I said, can you help me track down this stat because I think I got it from you. And they went looking for it, and they say, well, it wasn't in 97, maybe 98, we'll keep looking for it, but they haven't got back to me yet. Here's the stat. How many of us from the pulpit have ever said, now here's a a passage that you might want to read later on today after you leave church. Or in your devotional time, you might want to just think about this further this week. And the stat is that someplace between 80 and 90% of people in your congregation will do absolutely nothing. They won't even think about what you said on Sunday during the following week. That stat so bothered me. This is why I know I remember this stat accurately. That stat so bothered me, I said, I don't think that's true. And I'm going to prove it's not true. And we've got a pretty vibrant church here, and we're growing, and we've got lots of non-Christians here, and so I'm going to put this thing to the test, and we're going to do a survey in our church over the next month. And for the next month, every Sunday, I handed out four-by-five cards with a few questions on it. What did Pastor Steve talk on last Sunday? Did you even think about it during the week? Yes or no? 
Did you do anything with what he suggested in his application in the sermon this week? And 90% said, nope. Are you telling me I put 15 to 20 hours of work every week into the sermon and 90% of the people don't even think about it? They can't even remember what the topic was? If I ask my wife, what did I preach on last Sunday? She says, the Bible? Jesus? So it begs the question, then why do we bother preaching? And the answer is this. Because while 90% don't do anything, it does help 10%. There's some people there, if you've got a congregation of 100, there's 10 that really needed to hear what you had to say. And good preaching is like good eating. It has a cumulative effect. They may not remember what you said last Sunday, but what you said was good enough to help them grow and continue to grow. And by the way, even if nobody gets anything out of it, we've still got to discharge our responsibility before God. Hey, Jeremiah, why don't you go preach to the people? By the way, Jeremiah, I just want you to know nobody's going to listen to you, but go do it anyways. Ezekiel, go and represent me before the people, but they've got pretty hard hearts and their ears are all stopped up and they're not going to listen to you, but... You go preach anyways. So why do we do it if 90% don't listen? Because some are helped every week. Because accumulatively, it helps people. And because it's my responsibility as a Christ follower. It's what he asked me to do. So when I was a rookie preacher, fresh out of Bible college, going to Canada, I had these wonderful thoughts about what preaching was going to be like. And I thought that if I stand up and preach, it would have instantaneous application and life change. And everybody's going to be changed that week, and next week they're going to come back and say, give me some more. How else can I grow in Christ-likeness? And now that I've got a few years under my belt, I now understand that it's like I just said. I have no clue what Helen fed me three weeks ago. But I know it was enough to keep me healthy and growing. And that's the way it is with preaching. And once in a while, you'll put out a lobster and steak meal, and the people will go, I remember that sermon that you preached three years ago, and that profoundly changed me. So the definition I use of preaching is to persuasively communicate God's word in order to bring about God-honoring change in people's lives, with the emphasis right now being on this passage about being persuasive. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade people. Christ gave us this ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. To think that God wants us to be persuasive, he wants us to implore people to be saved and to grow to preach every Sunday like your own child's destiny hangs in the balance. Our oldest daughter got very far away from God, very far away from God, heavily addicted to Oxycontin, uh, living in absolute squalor, uh, 
terrible, terrible, terrible life circumstances. Met a guy, got married. And uh, the Lord delivered her and helped her get off Oxycontin. That was wonderful. Thank the Lord for that. But relationship with God's not right yet. She's not angry with God, doesn't hate the church. Matter of fact, she calls us daily, often asks us to pray about things, but her relationship with God's not right. A few months ago, she says to me, um, Dad, uh, I think we're going to go to church. Where are you going to go? Oh, there's some churches around here. There's a church uh, not too far from our house. It's a one of those video venue churches. Oh, good. They got live music and it's fairly young. Good, good. I think we're going to go try it out. Now I'm a dad. What do you think I'm thinking about the preacher in Texas? I hope he's preaching to persuade. I hope he's not preaching just to get a paycheck. I hope he's not preaching or she's preaching just to discharge a responsibility. I hope they're not going through the motions. I hope they're doing their study. I hope that when he or she stands up to preach, they're giving it everything they can. We implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. This issue of persuasion, Tom Rainer, most of you will know who Tom is. He says, preaching includes the proclamation of the historic biblical Christ as Savior and Lord with a view to persuade people to come to him personally and so be reconciled to God. Preaching never begins with an attitude or mindset that says, take it or leave it, I don't care. The preacher ought to intentionally, passionately attempt to persuade people to accept his message. And so I think it was the Greeks, I think, that first came up with this understanding of what does it actually take to persuade people. What it actually takes to persuade people, they said, well, it takes logic. You've got to be reasonable about this thing, and it's got to have some wisdom to it. Uh, there needs to be a power behind what you're saying. There's a, a presence and an unction. There needs to be some passion and some eloquence, and it's got to be engaging if you're going to persuade people. Uh, the character of the speaker is important. Uh, What's the motivation of the person speaking? Where are they coming from? That's a factor. If I think that they're a fraud, it doesn't matter what they have to say. I'm not going to buy into this thing. And then the reciprocal goodwill that if this person does something good for me, I'm more open to, to be persuaded to their point of view. When we preach, do we preach to persuade by doing what Jesus did? Because quite frankly, he used all five. And I'm starting from certain assumptions. I'm assuming that you're preaching the Word of God. I'm not assuming that you're preaching your opinions or preaching the latest Anley Stanley book. Uh, you're preaching the Word of God. I'm assuming that you're putting in your study. You know, I'm assuming that you're not just trying to make God's Word fit with your preconceived notions and biases. You're letting the Word of God. So I'm starting with certain assumptions about our preaching. But if we're going to be persuasive, it's got to be logical. Now that I'm no longer serving as a pastor of a local church, you know, it's my privilege actually to travel around a lot and to hear a lot of preaching. Is it logical? <laughs> Does it make sense? Do the, the points flow? Is there a continuous thought development here? Or is there these huge leaps? Like, how did you go from that to this? Like, you lost me at that point. 
know, is there some structure that seems to hold this thing together? Or is it just like random talking? You know, your premises and conclusions, are they reasonable? Does it have a one-word focus? That was John McElhaney that taught me that. He was one of the professors here years ago. He said, if you can't condense your sermon into one word, you're not ready to preach that word, that message. Honey, what did I preach on today? You preached on mercy. What did you preach on today? Preached on heaven. What did you preach on today? Preached on grace. Can you get your sermon into one word or a hyphenated word? Are the points easy to see from Scripture, and are the points and applications relevant to, to real life? You can't see that up there. I'm sorry. The logic has to do with the quality of our thinking and our preparation, our homework, and whether the Holy Spirit has been inspiring us. So is preaching that looks to bring about God, honor, and life change, is it, is it logical? I'm going to skip over the power one because I'm going to end with that one. And I'm going to go to this issue of enthusiasm and eloquence. Is the preacher excited and passionate, convinced of the importance of the message? Um, Quite frankly, um, I was just waiting for Steve or uh, Lenny to finish because I wanted to get up here. And in chapel last week, I was just waiting for the worship time to get finished because I wanted to get up there and preach because I'm convinced. I think I've got something that's worth hearing. Are you passionate? Are you engaged in this thing? Is the environment characterized by we're here to encounter and to hear from God? I was in a church not too long ago. It doesn't matter where it was, but I was a guest speaker. And um, um, it was a really odd situation. I, I, I got up to speak, and the, the congregation is laid out not like this. There's not a, not a center aisle. Actually, there's a center section, and a section here, and a section here. The center section was completely empty. There was nobody in the first four or five rows, and everybody sat in the back left-hand corner and the back right-hand corner. That's where everybody sat. And I had to work really hard to preach. And I thought to myself while I was preaching, these people are not used to hearing preaching. There's no expectation that I'm going to hear a word from God today. The wordsmithing, carefully chosen words, phrases that stick and resonate. Uh, resonate. Um, I, I was just watching because I, I knew what I was going to be sharing today. And so I was watching last night. Uh, in uh, when Steve Deneff was sharing with us. And every once in a while, he said a phrase, and you could hear the papers rustle. And people wrote down a little phrase. And it was almost universal. It was like, ooh, that's good. Most of the time, that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because somebody's put thought into how to craft this phrase well. A dispassionate speaker is rarely persuasive and convincing because 93% of persuasion, according to the studies, say has nothing to do with your content. It has everything to do with your delivery. Are you engaged? Do you believe this stuff? Enthusiasm has to do with the owning the message, the conviction that the message is true and needs to, be, needs to be heard. It's applicable. And it comes from the conviction that brings about boldness. And then there's character issues. What makes the sermon persuasive has something to do with our character as preachers. Is the preacher respected? Their life, their values, their work ethic, their relationship, their attitudes reflect well upon Christ and his church. You know, I was on a board in our denomination. It's actually the only time ever I've actually asked to serve on a board. 
And in our denomination, we call it the District Board of Ministerial Development. It's the board that actually helps guide the preparation of students in getting ready to be uh, ordained. And I asked if I could serve on it, and eventually I got to be chairman of that board. And, of course, I had to look eventually at the passage in First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and the Titus chapter 1, which gives the qualifications of a pastor, you know, hospitable, not given to much wine, all the rest of that. And I thought, is there a way to take all of that that's said there and condense it to make it really understandable? And I came up with this, that a pastor doesn't need to be perfect, but they do need to be exemplary. That when the congregation looks at this person, this is a, an exemplary example of what it means to be a woman of God or a man of God. Character counts. And the congregation believes the preacher is not sharing the sermon to get something off his or her chest, but because it's in our best interest to hear and to heed this message. What's their motivation? Are they saying this because it's self-serving so it makes them look good? Or are they really other-oriented? In part, this comes from the Revelation passage when God is doing the, the disciplining of the world in the last days and the tribulation. And I've read through that tribulation passage I, dozens and dozens of times. And one day I was reading through it and I saw something I'd never saw before in the Revelation chapter 6 passage where God is just decimating the world. And then there's this little phrase in there that says, and the world still did not repent. And I thought, that's interesting. Even when God is decimating the world, he's still trying to bring them to repentance. And when I stand up on Sunday morning, what's my motive? Is it other-oriented? I'm preaching this not so that I look good, but I really care about you. I'm, doing, I'm sharing this because it's in your best interest to hear this. Character has to do with our convictions because the primary determinant of whether a person will do something immoral or moral, is what you believe. I believe this is wrong. That's the greatest deterrent from doing the wrong, is what you actually can, are being personally con convicted about, your extensive time alone and your intentional accountability partners that help to keep you going the straight and true. And then goodwill and reciprocal is the fourth of these issues of what helps a person be persuasive when they're speaking. Uh, a preacher is loved, uh, a well-loved preacher uh, can preach no poor sermons. If your congregation loves you, they'll put up with a whole bunch of bad preaching because they just love you. Long tenure is important. Long tenures do not guarantee a church will grow, but short tenures do guarantee a church will not grow. I think it's Gary McIntosh that said that. The preacher knows and loves and serves and cares for his or her people, and the people know and love the pastor. So how do I get goodwill reciprocal thing going? Goodwill has to do with consistently adding value to other people's lives, the ongoing quality, the pastoral care which you provide, and admirable people skills. And there's a bunch of other stuff that we could talk about, about preaching as a means of large group discipleship to make sure that you're planning out your preaching well in advance so that you don't just keep preaching your pet topics over and over and over again. Uh, when I was a layperson in the church, I didn't know this at the time, now that I look back in hindsight with, on this side of understanding homiletics, I realize that one of the pastors that we had in one of the churches that I attended uh, years ago, probably 60 to 70% of the sermons were all about sanctification. Over and over and over again, the same topic. Not the full counsel of God. Planning out your sermons where you're watching to see I'm being too repetitive on the same themes. 
and encourage Berean learning. The Acts 17 passage where it says that Paul goes to the city of Berea and it says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians for they received the word of God with great eagerness but they studied the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And you encourage that amongst your people. I will never intentionally tell you something from the pulpit that's wrong but I'm a human being and I make mistakes. And you have a great obligation before God yeah, to receive what comes from the pulpit, but you have a responsibility before God to check it out for yourself, to see if what's being said is true. So we encourage that Berean mindset. I like the you asked for it because it gets an opportunity to scratch where people are actually itching. And we usually did that in August because that's you know a low time period in the church for attendance. And, and so what are we going to do? Well, let's try and motivate people to start getting back. And why don't we ask them what they want sermons on? It's a good way to do discipleship consecutively reading through books of the Bible in the public worship time. I'm not talking about preaching through books of the Bible. I'm talking about reading through books of the Bible. What did Paul say to Timothy? Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Did he mean that figuratively or did he mean it literally? Oh, the context was there wasn't many copies of the Word of God around back then, so somebody had to read it to the people. That is a thought. But what if God meant that to be taken literally? What if pastors actually devoted themselves to the public reading of Scripture? And when God got a hold of me on this issue, I thought, we're going to do it. It's what it says in the Word. We're just going to do it. And so every Sunday we would read about a chapter of Scripture, and we would read all the way through 1 Peter. And then after we finished 1 Peter, then we'd read all the way through 2 Peter. And then we'd read through 1 John, and then 2 John. And then we'd do Romans, and then we'd do Hebrews. And we just read through books of the Scripture, books of the Bible. And we got people that could read well and would take it seriously and would pray about it before they would get up to read. And so the people are in the, in the habit of standing for the, the reading of God's Word. And bring in evangelists and guest Bible teachers. It's a different voice with a different emphasis. And place the scripture reading after your introduction so that people know what to listen for. This is just personal thought. You don't have to accept this if you don't want to, but it's my contention that if we read scripture before we preach, the people have no clue what to listen for. You read the story of Zacchaeus climbing a tree? What's this about? Like, But if you tell people... Now, we're going to be speaking this morning on this issue of... Uh, of uh, making restitution and tell a story about restitution. Let's stand for the reading of God's word and let's, let's see where restitution is in this passage of scripture. Then you read it, then they know what to listen for. Ask God to give you Rima messages for your congregation, not just Logos messages. That passage, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word word of God is Rima. It's not Logos. It's not just a generic word from God that applies to all people for all time, but it's a specific word. What does God want to say to our people this Sunday? And you ask yourself, if Jesus was standing before my congregation this Sunday, what would he say and how would he say it? Because that's almost word for word what Jesus said. He said, I only say what God the Father gives me to say and how he told me to say it. It's not just content, it's delivery. Preach up, don't preach down. Preach out of the overflow. You've got to be putting in at least half hour of study for every minute that you speak. 
And I've pastored churches is smaller than anybody in this room. We had two, my wife and I. So none of you have got a church ever smaller than mine, unless your wife left you or your husband left you or something like that. So I've preached from the smallest as you can get, and I've preached up to good-sized churches. And somehow I found time to get a half hour at least of study every week, every, every hour, half hour every hour for every minute that I spoke. It can be done if it's intentional. I'm going to end with this issue of the, the power one. Because of the persuasion ones of logic and goodwill and reciprocal and all the rest of that, this is the one that challenges me the most. Is the preacher in his discipleship or her discipleship efforts, are they preaching under the unction and anointing of the Holy Spirit? Is the place where they're preaching saturated with the presence of God? Is the proclamation of the word substantiated by the demonstration of the power of God? Because power's got to do with the conditions of our heart and our expectations and the passionate pleading for his presence with us. Throughout the Bible, we find repeated references that persuasive power does not come solely from wise, reasonably crafted words and phrases and insights, where Paul says, my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words. And it doesn't come technically um, only from our technical correct oratory skills. Christ sent me, Paul, to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the, Christ, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Rather, over and over and over again, if we're going to be a discipling church, we have got to have God's spirit, unction, and anointing upon what we're saying. Paul says, my message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul and Thessalonians, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. Paul in Romans, to be a minister of Christ Jesus, and the context is him, the, the proclamation, the preaching. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, what God has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said, the preaching, and by what I've done, the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ and have always been my ambition to preach where Christ is not known. And on and on and on it goes to Scripture about preaching being tied to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knew when he commissioned those 12 guys that this issue of discipleship and evangelism was so important and such a huge task, he begged them, do not leave Jerusalem until you've been endued with power from on high. And yet, it seems to me that it's a rarely emphasized topic, this issue of the unction and anointing of God's Holy Spirit upon preaching. Gordon Fee and all kinds of theologians have said that in practice we are binatarians more so than we are Trinitarians. None of us in this room would say that we're not a Trinitarian. We all believe in the, in the Trinity. But if you actually analyze what we say in our sermons and what is said in the average church service, we talk a lot about God the Father. We talk a lot about Jesus. And the person and work of the Holy Spirit is almost entirely absent. Gordon Fee says, as a matter of creed and doctrine, is not as a vital experience in a believer's lives. He, the Holy Spirit, has been practically excluded from the experienced life of the church. George Hunter says, many writers have bemoaned the fact that if the Holy Spirit was removed entirely from the average church in America, few would notice. 
Dr. Steve Siemens down at Asbury Seminary, we depend nominally on the spirit, but primarily on ourselves, on our training, our skills, our personalities, our past experience, our knowledge, our sincere effort. As a result, we accomplish what is limited to what we can do. Arthur McPhee, lamenting the powerless evangelism efforts of the church, he said the success or failure of any evangelistic is a direct result of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and our willingness to honor him and give him control. I don't have time. I've almost out of, out of my time. But if we were to analyze what Charles Finney has to say and Lloyd-Jones has to say and uh, D.L. Moody and Adam Hamilton, I'll, I'll just give you the highest level summary of this. Uh, Adam Hamilton uh, is a pastor at the Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. It's a United Methodist Church. And uh, he was preaching at a Christmas Eve services. And it was either five or six services. His wife was at the first one. And he preached at this Christmas Eve service, and his uh, wife said, no, oh, that was a nice sermon that you gave. And uh, he got under tremendous conviction that he had not prayed and asked God to bless and to be there to use it. And so he preached the second service, and same results. And in between the second and third service, he got alone with God, and he repented, and he said, God, I have not pleaded with you for your presence. And he felt like God said to him, this is a United Methodist guy, said, I let you see what you can get when you preach on your own. Now, in the next three services, I'm going to show up, see what happens. The next three services he preached, and he said the place you could hear pin drop. He said the presence of God was so palatably present. His wife came back for the last service. She was at the first one. She was at the last one. After the service, she came up to him and said, when did you change your sermon? He said, I didn't change my sermon the exact same sermon I preached at the first one. The difference was the presence of God. Charles Finney, and I end with this. When I was a rookie, and I mean, I hadn't even hardly arrived in Canada, our district office called us one day and said, uh, all the young preachers want you to come to our, our office in, in Belleville. We want to have a, an older, experienced preacher come and talk to you. So Dr. Ira Taylor, he's a, a black preacher from down in the islands, he was, uh, he was there. He said to us young kids, he said, he said, you know, when you preach, he said, you're like the little boy with his lunch. What? He said, yeah, you're like the little boy with his lunch. You've just got a few little loaves and you, a few little fishes. And you're, he said, someday you're going to stand in front of your congregation, and before you preach, you're going to look down at your, your notes, and you're going to say, it's not enough. What I've got right here, is not enough. He says, unless God by his Holy Spirit comes and touches and uses that sermon, it won't be enough. But if you give your sermon to God and you ask him to use it, it'll be enough to feed everybody.